1: Welcome to the next Reels Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. I'm Andy Nelson, flying solo for this episode. Today, we've invited Academy Award winning costume designer Deborah Scott to talk about Roland Jaffe's The Mission, a movie she likes. Deborah, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, I'm thrilled to chat with you about this movie, which you, uh, you know, you sent us a big list of movies. This was at the top of the list. And it was the first one that I gravitated to because we've never talked about it on our show before. And it is one of my favorite movies. Obviously, didn't know that. But (laughs) I was like, Oh, my God, this is great. We got a chance to chat about a movie that really means a lot to me. And so I am very excited.
2: That's wonderful. A lot of people don't know that movie. I still feel it's a little obscure. I guess at the time it wasn't because it, you know it had a lot of nominations and things like that. But now, twenty years later, thirty years later, whatever it is, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it's just not talked about very much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's frustrating because at the time of its release. It was largely considered a box office flop. It didn't make its money back, which is uh, strange to me. But I suppose given the topic, maybe it wasn't something that was as uh, as much interest to people. Yeah. But as you said, it did end up getting a number of awards. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's one thing that people still would perhaps recognize as coming from this film, it's Ennio Marconi's score, which.
2: Oh, my God yeah
1: it's one of the tops, right?
2: <laughs> I mean, it's so good it's it's really the glue that kind of holds the movie together. is I don't want to get off topic, but there's not that much dialogue, really. There's some scenes where there's intense dialogue for a short amount of time, but there's long, long stretches where there's no dialogue, and it's all music, yeah, so I mean it's a score that holds up. you can anybody listening anybody just listen to the score if you haven't seen the movie, it's absolutely stunning
1: uh, it's it's also one of my favorites, so yeah, yeah. Before we dig too deep into this movie, which, again, very excited to chat about uh, with you, I wanted to just kind of get to know you a little bit, your background, how you got into costumes, all of that good stuff. So take us back to the beginning. And, you know, little Deborah, what was it that said, you know what? Costumes. I think that's where I want to uh, gravitate (laughs) toward.
2: That's a funny question. I think uh, I started very young being drawn to the cinema because my father was a big fan of movies. So he would take us on occasion to the drive-in, which no longer exists either. Pretty much. He loved a Western. He loved John Wayne. He loved all those things. So we, you know, I started watching movies when I was quite young um, with him. And then I learned to sew very at a young age. And I think I was just drawn to costumes because of of what it brings to a character and I think a lot of the movies I really like have very strong strongly drawn characters so that was that was one of the things I went through as I went through school went through high school I was in the drama department and I just I thought I would move to California and you know who knows maybe I would try acting which was ridiculous but the whole time I was doing theater I would also be oh well Deb can do the costumes because she can sew right? So Uh, it it became a vernacular that I was really comfortable with. When I went to college, that's pretty much what I majored in, which, you know, and when you major in design, you're also get to include sets and makeup and hair, which I gravitate to as well. Now, that was pretty much it. And I met very fortunately, decided early on that I, I did a little theater stint, some Shakespeare festivals and things like that. And it was very clear that you weren't going to make a living doing that, <laughs> so and I really wanted to do what I do full time. So I decided to try my hand at filmmaking, and I went to college with Charlie Martin Smith, who you maybe remember from the Buddy Holly story, and he introduced me through a couple of people. He was working on a film called Never Cry Wolf, which is also one of my favorite movies. And they found themselves in need of a costume designer or costume person at that time. So, you know, he suggested me and I got the job and I, that's how I really got started. That was my first really main, you know, I had done some low budget horror film stuff before that and a little bit of television, but that was my first, like what I felt legitimate movie
1: that which is a, a a great start definitely a film yeah. that stands out i mean it's a you know it was one of those films that i remember as a kid like my parents talking about because it was just something that um they found so powerful and so it's it's yeah. just one of those films that's kind of Always been lingering around and perhaps another film that isn't talked about as much yeah. these days, but certainly a film that is worth looking at and worth talking about for sure.
2: Very much so. It's got a beautiful look to it. It's a very, you know, intense character study as well. Yeah. And Carol Ballard's a wonderful, wonderful director. So Black Stallion, for example, you know. Yep. <laughs> so, you yep. know, he's he's pretty he's pretty great. Um, so I was lucky for that. And then that that was a sort of jumping off point to meeting Steven Spielberg, which was very in- incredibly lucky. Sure. And I got hi- I got hired to do ET with him. Wow. Yeah,
1: an interesting uh, journey. Now, when you're jumping into like the mindset of, of uh, costume designer, obviously, there's the logistical side of it as far as like, okay, how many story days do we have? How many outfits do I need for each of those story days for each of the characters who are seen on those days? How many uh, duplicate uh, outfits do I need because potentially stunts or, you know, blood splatters or whatever? I mean, there's all mm-hmm. that logistic stuff that you obviously mm-hmm. have to be dealing with. But before you get to all that, the logistical side, just when you're looking at the script in the story, like, w- how do you start processing the ideas that you're going to bring for the characters?
2: That's an interesting question. I think, you know the more experience you have, the more you can sort of you sort of double read, right? So you're at the same time thinking of the scope of the production as well as what what your your initial read on a script would be. And because you read so many scripts that you may not get asked to do or that you may choose not to do, right? So the script read is really important in terms of does it speak to you personally? Like, is there something about this that sparks something in you that you feel like I have something to contribute to this? I can see myself developing these characters, working with the actors, you know, at that time, at the beginning, you don't really usually know that who the actors might be, but you're probably very aware of the director and you sort of decide, is it artistically something for me that speaks to me personally, that I feel that I can absolutely say something
1: Which And I think there's a really interesting uh, way of approaching that from something that that involves a lot more kind of creative juices as far as, okay, how am I going to dress a Na'vi versus (laughs) something like uh, The Upside of Anger, which is a straight up family drama, Mm -hmm. beautiful film. But it's like, there's nothing like... You know, outlandish about that story. It's just a you know a mom and her daughters and kind of this story. Mm -hmm. So, in processing like that, that wide scope of that, how do you how do you look at that?
2: It's the characters that will speak to you. Sometimes it can be the genre, like something like an Avatar film. It may not be you know starting that movie. You wouldn't have an understanding necessarily of the characters per se because it's such a bizarre process with the with the you know to lack of a better term for the public animation of it, but it's still something where each character comes alive to me in some way. Do I like them? Do I not like them? And and then quickly you transition because of my training and my, my, um, what I like to do is, you know, so, say like, okay, well, what would, how do you visually see them? You know, what, what are the visual things that come to mind? It could be a color. It could be a, a pattern. It could be a a bunch of different things. And then you, then I start to look at what the scope of the movie is. Is it a fantasy? Is it sci-fi? Is it a period piece? What period is it? What do I know about that period? So, you know, once you're sort of intrigued by the characters and what you as a costume designer can bring there, because it's really the visual language of how they exist on the screen, right? That, that they don't, they're not just heads. They're like full, full on people, top to bottom. So I think the designer has a, an obligation to sort of get that right in terms of the narrative of the film, the desire of the director for the film and then, and the actors, of course, but, and production design, it all works together. Like, what are you trying to say and how are you going to say it? So you hope to get that correct. Um, And then I do usually do a very intense period of research, whether it be somebody that's an upside of anger, ordinary, you know, high school girl, because everybody has their story to tell. Every character has a place in time that they live and breathe. That's important to illustrate visually.
1: Then on top of that, it's Uh, You know, obviously, some things may be built into the script, and some of the things are like, you're just kind of like, I'm just, I have to paint this entire picture of what this person looks like. And obviously, there are conversations with the director. Uh, I mean, is it mostly the director you find yourself working with in that scope? Do you find that in the scope of kind of the the overall look of the film, does the cinematographer, production design, does that end up influencing some of what you're thinking about as far as costumes?
2: Yeah, I think they all... Influence it because you're telling the story together in different visual ways, you know, a cinematographer, a production designer, costume designer. But I think for me, it's absolutely the director and their vision because I come from a time, my, the beginnings of my career where the director is the head of the movie and sometimes they're writer directors, which make them even more clued into what they're doing, right? That this is their vision, and your job is to help them reach that. Some directors know a lot about what they want, you know, and some directors have absolutely no idea what they want, but they do know those people for the most part, right? And then they they cast them. So then they really get invested in those people. So that's a journey. And I think the director is absolutely the, um, He's just the leader of the entire circus, for sure. And I think it, a good movie requires a strong director, for sure. I think the way if you look at even my list of films, but something like the mission that we're going to talk about, it's obviously very, very strongly directed. That's—I I don't know if that's the right word to use, but it's incredibly cohesive from t- beginning to end, from top to bottom.
1: Sure. Just a few notes on on some, some films that you have worked on in the past. Back to the Future is kind of a key one. Um, and I, I wonder, like, Marty's uh, outfit, like, particularly the vest, was that... Obviously, there's a line involving that once he gets to the diner. Is that something <laughs> that was actually in the script? Or did you, mm. like, have that as part of his outfit and it ended up getting worked into the script?
2: Isn't the line something like a life looks like a life preserver. Yeah, like, f- right. Something yeah. Like that. yeah. Or he says yeah.
1: something about him being a sailor. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, I think, I think in that particular case, it wasn't written into the script. So the idea being, and I think this was where the writers and the director and the costume designer really came together. You know, we came together as one. It's like, he needs to, that character needs to walk into that 1950s diner from the 80s at that point, very far right. in the future, yeah. <laughs> and and make an impression, but also fit in, right? So, you know, I started to go through a long list. Okay, what, what do p- kids wear in the 50s? Jeans, sneakers, shirts, you know, there's a lot of things that are similar. So you could say, okay, well, put him in a shirt, but the patterns may be different. So it's odd, but not odd enough for people to really notice right he's wearing jeans that maybe well we didn't really have exactly that because there were only levi's but you know so it wouldn't have been enough it's not enough for a joke it's barely enough to get noticed so it was a lot of uh thought <laughs> that went into <laughs> that um and i think partially it might have been one day i was you know i knew it was coming and and bob i remember bob gale specifically coming to me and saying what can we how can we make this funny right what's the joke here So to be able to contribute to the joke was uh, terrifying (laughs) 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 and also really rewarding ultimately because I think it was winter at that time. And I think, you know, I started to think about, oh my God, look at down coats. No one had, they didn't, that didn't exist in the fifties. Can we work that in? And then I think it was, it was a series of conversations where that was a really good kind of springing off point for the joke. And then it became like, what about orange? right because maybe brown no one would have noticed but orange you notice it, you don't notice it too much it right, was a very right. popular color in the 80s everybody was wearing north face so uh <laughs> you know, i think from then it was like it felt really good to be able to sort of supply the visual that then that the joke could spring from
1: that's that's so funny what a what a journey just to get to that you know yeah and- it was
2: hard it was harder i have to say at the end when chris lloyd comes back from the future Mm -hmm. and to try to decide like Mm. remember that i remember them asking me at one point like but deb what are people going to wear in the future like (laughs) with all seriousness and i was like if i knew that i could be very wealthy i
3: don't
2: i don't know so that became more of a loosey-goosey kind of joke and kind of silly
3: but yeah right
2: yeah but the the down, down yeah It was Uh completely ridiculous, really. But they, (laughs) (laughs) but it was more for show, right? It was going to be obvious when he and he does, you know, Chris Lloyd's like such a physically great actor, like springs out of the DeLorean and he's
1: Yeah, right, right.
2: Yeah, he looks like a madman.
1: Oh, that's so funny. funny. What about when you're working on a film that has a lot of technical aspects involved in the characters, uh, thinking specifically of something like Heat, where you've got detectives, you've got criminals who obviously, like the bank heist, for example, they they know all the, the right gear to be wearing for bulletproof vests and all that st- sort of stuff. How much of that do you have play with as far as I'm going to redesign the look of the bulletproof vests, or is it more these are great bulletproof vests I'm going to work them into what they're wearing underneath like how 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 do you involve the technical side of that
2: yeah, well, that's an uh, new unu- a little bit of an unusual case because Michael Mann, who also was on my list, he's a brilliant filmmaker, very, very strong, completely you know dedicated director, and who isn't excited to see his new film I am. Mm, uh, but he's <laughs> right. No kidding. <laughs> so, uh, but in that case, I mean, he's a, a stickler for precision, Michael. So we had a, a a few technical advisors, right? Military, SAS, as you know, like, all these, like, the, the, a detective from Los Angeles. So there were people that I could go to, and he wanted it to be completely accurate. So there was no, there was going to be no redesigning. There was going to be nothing. It was like, how do you make this work? You know, do, does he want to see the vest or not see the vest? That's a, you know, little thing. You know, he's a, he's a complete stickler for precision and choices, Michael. So everything is very well considered. So you might bring him like at the beginning when they're they're dressed they're in the ambulance right they're supposed to be ambulance drivers michael gives me the brief and then it would had to be this particular color well we dyed many versions of that particular (laughs) color many (laughs) and like within a very low you know very very narrow range of that color minty green and till if there was one that he liked right so that might that might be a case where maybe he did call in the cinematographer and say, you know, considering the lighting that day, it's outdoors, it's daytime, the inside of the, what the ambulance, he goes through all those steps. So he's uh, very demanding in that way. And I think it really gives you the task of, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make it just right for you? Because that's what his brain is telling him. He's the director. He helped write that project. So very, very Con- very, very considerate of the characters of each one and how they might dress,
1: so to that end, is your room for play we'll we'll call it more outside of their work, like when it's like Robert de Niro hanging out at his house or or things like that or or Pacino back in his in his place with his family, things like that that's where you have a little more give as far as I, like
2: I think so, but I think there's a in that movie in that film there's a a vero very narrow kind of hallway that they walk, that these characters walk in, right? They don't go, you don't see them very much relaxing.
1: (laughs) Right. They're always on. (laughs)
2: They're always on. They're always intense. They're always very much focused ahead. So it was really a matter in that case of, you know, talking to Michael and sort of discussing the characters. The casting was incredibly important, really painted these characters, you know, how De Niro wanted to play his guy and Pacino and, you know, the intensity and the dedication that they have as actors, which brings a whole other kind of energy to your choices. Sure. Yeah. And Michael had done enough research on his own that he was, he felt that a a character like De Niro coming out of prison would be the kind of person who, because prisoners and his, this prisoner in his opinion, it was a very, very precise man, very clean, very neat, very pressed. You, you know, he doesn't have a wrinkle at all. His hair is always perfect. You know, he looks, he's got it, right? It's like he's not, there's nothing left to chance. And on top of it, he's kind of, uh, camouflaged a gray suit, a white shirt. Just you, you, you just, it goes to the background. Like you don't notice it. Right? It disappears yeah. Yeah. and in his own quiet way. So, uh, we went through. And I am not kidding because we didn't, we didn't build his suit. We, we, it was a, a lot of purchasing on that show, not a lot of building. And I think we went through about a hundred suits, maybe more to find just the right gray one. Wow. Yeah. So he, and you can see his same, what was the film he did with Tom Cruise after that? Collateral. Yeah. Can you see, if you look at those two characters side by side,
1: Uh huh. it's the yeah. same formula yeah you're right
2: right It's the same It's the same kind of guy gray suit, white shirt mm-hmm. yep
1: very much plays into both of those characters.
2: Mm-hmm. It's interesting, yeah.
1: Last one that I want to kind of chat about as far as, uh, I mean, you, you've got a very robust filmography. There are a lot of, uh, movies, uh, to talk about. A lot of ones that I certainly love. A lot of filmmakers that it just, I mean, you've worked with so many amazing filmmakers, but I already mentioned, um, the Navi and Avatar. And just in the scope of, I just want to kind of get a little sense of how the working style changes for you when you're working on a film like, let's talk about most recently Avatar way of water when so many of the characters are being digitally created. Uh, I mean, you're still manufacturing actual outfits, Mm -hmm. but like, where does that come into play? Because I mean, uh, and again, this is, you know, my understanding of, of filming these, but like the actors are, are doing the whole little motion capture performances. Mm -hmm. And so when do those costumes actually, how, how do they end up getting integrated into the production?
2: Well, the process of working on a film like that, which is a, you know, highly technical is there. It's like the, the answer to that question is kind of twofold in that you have this incredibly new world, right? All this technology, all this, you know, all this ways of making different things happen and visually making things happen. And then you have old school. How do you make it happen? How does it really happen? And Jim is, you know, he rides both of those waves completely. So the decision very early on, even sort of halfway through the first film, which I came in on, and then definitely in film two, and now we're doing post for film three, that we were to make every single garment, every single bracelet, every single prop, every single wig, every single thing. And in some cases, you use it to inform the actors, uh, performance capture because they've never worn it. You know, if you've never worn a loincloth, you might walk around differently <laughs> than you do in a pair of jeans, right? So Fair point, yeah. <laughs> that's simple. That's a, that's a very simplistic kind of one for one. So there, there is that. And we do a lot of that and we do a lot of reference with the garment because the garments are made for human scale. So humans can wear them, not the nine foot tall Navi character. So the motion reference so that a computer can then later understand, well, that's a very strangely constructed thing. It's not a blouse. We know our computer programs know what a bl- how a blouse moves or how jeans crease, but we don't understand that, right? We don't know what that is. So you're giving them Motion reference for a real thing that kind of they don 't know what it is until they get <laughs> it right so the, if you think in the mind of, wow. of a computer right you're like i don't i don't think I've never seen that before, and which is the whole point of those costumes is that they're unique bespoke one of a kind you couldn't even you almost literally can't duplicate them physically that's how complicated they are so having said that, I think the biggest thing for me. The, the biggest thing that it gives the movie, the biggest visual plus that making those costumes gives to that movie is that the computers can then, and the artists who use them, right? Because there's a lot of human beings involved in making those garments in real life and making those garments in the virtual world. Digitally, yeah. Right. right. So it takes a lot of different kinds of talent, but if you hand them a very intricately woven with beads and little rocks and little pieces of thread even as something as simple as an armband you know one inches by four inches the computer can then scan that they're i'm I'm using the word computer which is probably not at all right right their 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 equipment can scan that image and they read it absolutely like a it's a roadmap it becomes a texture map and that way they can duplicate it or replicate it perfectly where you can't do that from a drawing because you can't even draw those costumes right our drawings are very conceptual the pieces are very intricately thought out and and created so from a drawing the technology would then say oh i think it's this swirly swirly line say or but when you give them a really woven thing they can say oh that's 16 knots shaped in a circle again a very simplistic kind of thing but you so the the ability to supply that texture map for the the vi- virtual world is extremely important especially when you want to make costumes that are that um complex
1: yeah Wow. I I mean, it just boggles my mind when I think about that. Because I, I, you know, reading through your bio, I was like, it's amazing that they made all those costumes. But as you describe it to me, I'm like, well, yeah, it it makes sense. It makes perfect sense because that gives the computer the model that it can then pattern all of that off of. That's right. That's right. It's the actual thing,
2: right? It's the real thing. It's not a guess. It's not a drawing. It's not an interpretation. There's no interpreting it. It's that. It's that very, very fine thing.
1: Well, and as you talked about that, the actors understanding what it feels like moving around in a loincloth. Also, I would imagine just it's something that informs their performance as far as like, okay, I have a better sense as to I can get more get myself more into the head of my Navi character Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I'm wearing this outfit, even if I don't have a tail and I'm not nine feet tall and all that sort of stuff. That's right.
2: And it affects actors, different actors in different ways. You know, and our producer John Landau always would cite the sample, the example of a that uh, Sigourney Weaver's character Kiri wears a shawl, and she wears it kind of for protection, right? Not not physical pro- protection, but more like emotional. So it's her emotional support shawl, as we. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but she, you know, so the way she moves with it and handles it, you have to capture that. You know, the shrug of her shoulders, the hunch of her back, whatever it is that how she when she puts that on is then transferred to the performance to the capture to the virtual world
1: it's amazing
2: yeah it's pretty it's pretty complicated it's it's kind of a whole new it's definitely a whole new world a whole new world for me for sure
1: yeah right no kidding i mean it's 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 almost like taking taking everything to the next step it's like the digital evolution of costume making and i'm just like it's just it's fascinating that that that's going there
2: Yeah, but the real, the really essence of it is this incredible digital world of costume making and filmmaking, but it's based on the absolute, absolute ancient craft of making something with your hands.
1: Right. Right.
2: Yeah. Uh, It goes directly from the most rudimentary way of expressing art to the most technological way of expressing art.
1: Try to get AI to do that, right? Yeah,
2: can't do it. Can't do it. They can't do it.
1: (laughs) <laughs> nope, not at all. Not at all.
2: Oh. <laughs> it takes real. It takes A lot of really talented people, for sure. Yeah, I'm, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I'm a lucky. I'm a lucky person that way. I know a lot of really talented people that work with me. So,
1: sure. How big was your team on on Way of Water?
2: Mm, I think it probably at its biggest, not con- including the set crew. You know, the it probably around yeah. forty people. Okay, I mean, you know, that's substantial. Still, that's, yeah, that's big. Yeah, definitely,
1: yeah. definitely mm-hmm. big size. Well it shows your work shows. I mean through not just that film but really all of it just the oh, the uh, the great work you do. I also just have to I have to call out something that Funny enough, has been burned into my head since I watched this movie in the mid '80s. Because I don't know, it's just a really funny scene. It's probably completely inappropriate by today's standards, <laughs> but I have never stopped laughing at the moment in Armed and Dangerous with uh, John Candy and Eugene Levy when they sneak into the the little smut shop and then they exchange the clothes with those uh, the two uh, uh, the the one in drag and the other guy, and then they're just. <laughs> walking out <laughs> well one of the funniest things
3: yeah
2: it's so when you work with <laughs> when you work with comedians of that you know level like very funny people it 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 couldn't make your job easier it's de- they're demanding in the best of ways yeah. you know so and they bring it man so you're like How about this idea and it's like <laughs> yes <laughs> so yeah it was pretty it was pretty funny that's funny. Oh. I'm surprised that you would mention that. That's, that's an obscure film, very. obscure.
1: It's totally obscure, <laughs> but it, like John Candy dressed in that red dress with a giant white wig and then Eugene Levy in that like black leather outfit with his like exposed butt cheeks. And mm-hmm. just like it's, I laughed so hard when I was a kid and, and I still <laughs> think it's one of the funniest things. So
2: <laughs> That's a that's a good that's a, that movie's a good example of, you know, you that movie, I think if I look back on it, I decided to do that movie because like oh my god comedy legends of course you're gonna say sure. yes right yeah, yeah. That, i mean let's do it <laughs> so
1: absolutely yeah, absolutely
2: crazy
1: it's great seeing eugene levy like having like this total career resurgence in the last like few decades just like it's amazing how how uh, popular he is in circles so i'm just a, like it thrills me to know dana
2: carvey was in it I mean, yeah. you know they're like i mean yeah comedy legends for sure it's yeah. it's a shame we lost john candy
1: That's oh for sure. i know so tragic mm-hmm. well let's shift gears uh as as fun as it is talking to you about uh everything that you've been up to uh let's talk about this film roland joffey's 1986 uh film the mission
3: little in this world unfolds as we predict Indeed, how could the Indians have supposed that the death of this unsung priest would bring among them a man whose life was to become inextricably intertwined with their own? Tell them, they must leave the mission. They say it was the will of God that they came out of the jungle and built the mission. They don't understand why God has changed his mind. You should never have become a priest. But I am a priest and they need me. If you die with blood on your hands, you betray everything we've done. If might is right, and love has no place in the world. A land of timeless beauty, an age of conquest, the laws of heaven, the way of the world, the lives in the balance. Director of the Killing Fields comes this year's winner of the Best Picture Award at the Cannes Film Festival. The Mission.
1: First, what is it about this particular film that uh, that draws you to it so much?
2: Well, I think it's an incredible example of a bunch of different stuff, but the first one being incredibly well-drawn characters. They're so well done from, I mean, the writing is amazing. The acting is beyond the directing, but the characters are so beautifully drawn. The story of what happens to those men individually and together is extremely powerful for me. And when I I remember very well going to the theater and saying, okay, what's this all about? You know, let's just check this out. Great cast who's, you know, sat down in my seat. The movie starts, the credits are quiet, there's not a sound. And then slowly that music comes in, right? It's the voiceover which I'm not even sure how that relates to the script particularly if that was an afterthought or it, it probably was was not because it seems so appropriate, right? But that when that music starts, you are in it. You are in that movie. It is evocative. It stirs your soul. I said to myself, I sat my seat and I said, oh yeah, this is, this is going to be a great movie. You can tell in the first five minutes, this is going to be a great movie.
1: So my, my story with this film, I, I didn't see it when it was out in theaters. Um, it came to me a few years later. Um, I was uh, When I was in high school, I studied Spanish. And I ended up in this, um, uh, this program called Amigos de las Americas, which is where high school kids go to Latin America and they work in a rural community over a summer and do uh, health work and community work and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I did it for a couple summers, but the first summer that I was getting ready to go do that. As we were all, like, over the course of the school year, you know, we were always having trainings and stuff like that, and we would get together, and one of the movies that we ended up renting and watching, we're always like, what are some movies that kind of tie into where we're going to be going and all this sort of stuff? And this was one of those movies that um, somebody brought, and I watched it, and, and it just... I was thrilled to no end because that first year I went to to Paraguay. So I was like right in this area where all of this story is taking Fantastic. place. I was in a rural community, community where a lot of the people were like descendants of the Guarani. And t- to top it all off, then, you know, we took a, a break in the middle of our time there and we went to Iguazu Falls and we got to kind of uh. tour around that whole area, which was still just like mm. one of the top uh, experiences in my life. And so... Just being there, doing health work in this world where so much of this film took place. Oh, and the town I was living in had an old Jesuit, like a mission actually mm. in in the place there that was actually being restored at the time. And like, we would go with the people that we were staying with and we would go to mass on Sundays in this old Jes- Jesuit mission. And so it just like, my mind was like, so in this movie, um, well, when I watch it, and then it's, you know, I've continued watching it over the years, and I just always am drawn to the story of these people. And just, I, I find that it's, aside from my my excitement and passion for, like, this part of the world and and exploring a story like this and the music and everything like that, just, I find that there is such interesting complexities within the story about the idea of, you know, what was going on in the world at the time, as far as, like, the Spanish and the Portuguese battling over territory and who is going to get to claim this area. And can we get rid of the mission so that we can get more of these uh, Guarani to be slaves and, and jump into our slave trade and all that sort of stuff. And 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 then you're also getting like this whole side of like religion and the way that the religious system was set up paired with faith. And, you know, Jeremy Irons character, Gabriel, so much represents faith in the community, in the people, in Uh, Just kind of like that uh, being authentic and allowing the people to be who they are, whereas the church is so tied into the politics. And I found that to be such an interesting um, exploration in the film that uh, for me, when I first saw this, uh, I found to be such a kind of an eye opening thing that it's just like, I don't know, kind of looking at this side of, of the way that kind of the politics of the church and, and how all this stuff uh, yeah. plays out. I, it's it's a very interesting element to the whole story.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. It's also, you know, taking history, any movie that is, you know, can, can kind of beckon back to a time in history that's accurate and real, whether it's dramatized or not you know, is is eye-opening. It's a, it's almost like you have to watch it, right? You're, you should watch it. It's more, probably even more useful than reading about it. And it's a story that is so complex, like you're saying, with all these different parts of the world interacting and crossing paths. And what does it mean for the indigenous peoples of that country? And how, how, how are the Jesuits going to deal with the church? And how is, you know, are Spain going to deal with Portuguese? It's so complex in terms of politics, religion, and, and human beings, that it's fascinating how it the story unfolds, and, and it holds you there. Because the complexity of it is, you know, you can't escape it. You can't escape the the drama that it brings to your own soul. You can't escape the, the sadness, the relief, the there's so many emotions. Like you, I cry through that movie, like nobody's business, you know, either you're just moved to happiness or you can't believe this horrible thing that you just saw and not in a gratuitous, a gratuitous way at all, not at all. It seems absolutely realistic. And I think the filmmakers did an amazing job just in all of it, right? The, the, the production design and the, the use of those falls. And I know the Guarani people lived in and around there, but those, right. the visual, the sound of the falls, the, the power of it just is like a, it's, it's such a symbol of kind of what is to come, what has happened. You know, faith can be huge. So can't, so can a government? <laughs>
3: yeah, right.
2: So you know all these things kind of battling it out, and how nature kind of was the where uh, you it points to, right? It shows you in nature what's going to happen in the world almost. So the production design is amazing. Finding those those locations, rewatching the movie again, I I was like, oh my god! Can you imagine being on that film crew? It must have been brutal. <sighs>
1: I can't, yeah. It must have been
2: brutal. The bug bites alone. I mean, that, you know, the physical being it hot, the physical, I kept thinking, man, there must have been a lot of visits to the set nurse and doctor, you know, there's no way
1: yeah just watching watching the scenes where uh you know inevitably they're using some stunt people to like scale the 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 wall beside the the falls, but what? there are some shots where the camera's oh, yeah. close enough. I'm like that really looks like Jeremy Iron's like yeah. on the side of this hill with nothing yeah. holding him here. What is going on here yeah
2: it's it's crazy, and I think that that decision alone and I'd love to have known how they made some of these decisions but the decision alone to put that you know jeremy iron's performance is unbelievable he's like the simplest man with the, the biggest heart and the and the most expansive mind right so he's got he's and he's out there in the elements one slender <laughs> young man <laughs> scaling that mountain yeah. at peril in every step right so is that the journey of his life? Yeah. Is that what he was doing that day? Yes. It's big and small.
1: Yeah. Talk about being present when you're oh, actually my god. performing, right? It's like you like,
2: oh my god, oh my god. You just want to close your eyes, <laughs> and you can feel it, and you can hear, you know, the music and the. And again, I mean, I could go back to the sequences where there's no dialogue that you you don't need it. You don't need them to translate the language. Mm-mm. Yeah. You know, they don't waste it. He, he, they wasted no time. It's a brilliant screenplay.
1: Yeah, that's a actually really interesting point. Speaking to the Guarani and the the nature of the the people that, you know, this story centers around that, you know, there's certainly an argument to be made about, like, the side of the missions and were they actually doing anything good by the work that they were they were doing. And I think the film kind of touches on that a little mm-hmm. bit. Um But the The way that it portrays these people, and I, my understanding from reading up on it, is actually a group of uh, people from Colombia that the director had found. Like he, Roland Jaffe went into this script saying, "I can't do this story if it's just about a bunch of white men. I, I want to make sure that, it, that it's centered on the tribe." And so, Robert Bolt, who wrote it, was just like, "Well, good luck." <laughs> <laughs> and so so Roland was like, well, okay, I got to go down there and find some people and he ended up in Colombia and found a group um a, a, a tribe in a few communities who they ended up flying this whole group. He was the first white man that he, that they had ever seen.
2: Doesn't surprise me.
1: Yeah, and and their understanding of white people were that they were they were bad. They were people who would come and take you away and that was essentially all they knew about white people, but he kind of he talked to them about it and and told them about the story and, and they agreed to be a part of it. And they for the first time, they all went and hopped on a plane and they all flew down to to the falls and to film around kind of you know, the Iguazu Falls are right there on the border between Brazil and Argentina and to kind of like film in that area. And then they did a lot of filming also in in Colombia. But um but capturing this. What feels like like an authentic group of people who we don't need to translate it, as you said, like we're experiencing it from essentially kind of like that outsider perspective of hearing them in their their native tongue and just watching them doing things and we can understand. And that's what's so amazing about. Like just the way that uh Jaffe decided to not give us subtitles for everything they say, we can still understand what they're saying, their actions.
2: Yeah, you don't need it. You do not need it. You're so you so it becomes so clear what's going on that and I think that's a really uh I I bet you wouldn't be able to get away with that now, right? this is the studios would be like no way you're not just like, leaving out <laughs> but this the dialogue is spare all along but the fact that you don't get that translation i think i thought was an incredibly strong and brilliant move on his part and i think the auth- authenticity i've done a lot of research with indigenous peoples around the world and that authenticity i think is absolutely key you 100% believe it the costumes are great the makeup's great all of it's great the casting's great all of it's great and That it's very interesting to me as these indigenous peoples around the world, which is also the sad statement of the film, right? That they're disappearing in our world, right? right? But that that the language that the Guarani speak is huge. It's that's what's survived now to this day. I find that amazing. Kind of doesn't have anything to do with the movie, but it does have to do with like some things can last, right? Some things can the movie in general, the arc of it is like, it's the story of power versus nature of power versus normal people that every single country that has ever moved into, you know, everybody has committed those crimes. Yeah. You know, all the powers of the world have committed those crimes and whether they did it as harshly, or less harshly, it doesn't matter. We're all, all of civilization is guilty of what happened there. Yeah. Because it's happened true. every, it's happened everywhere. It happens everywhere. And that is, that's one of the, the powers of the film. That's the, the biggest takeaway that it's not just, you know, and Robert McInally, his last line Ugh. where he said, uh, I it just, it, it kills you, you know? Like, we did this, right? I can't remember his, and thus something, I can't remember his exact words.
1: Yeah, I, I wrote it down. Because he, he's talking to the Portuguese um, uh, uh, person who says, we must work in the world, the world is thus. And then he says, no, thus have we made the world, thus have I made it.
2: Thus have I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, killer. I mean, yeah, just killer, right there.
1: Well, and, and then, I mean, have you stayed through the end of the credits with this one? Mm-hmm. Where that, he looks. Uh, I mean. Like, just like, he's like right into your soul, right? I'm like, so guilty.
2: Yeah. Like, we're, all, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. You know, I can't help it that I was born a white girl. You know, that's not my fault. <laughs> but I am also in by, just by the nature of life, we are all guilty. Yeah, You know.
1: Robert McAnally's performance uh, just. Spectacular. And it's a simple performance, but just like as you see him evolving from the start of the film where it just really feels like he is very much the voice of the church. But it's like once you get to that place where he's actually doing the tour and he's going from mission to mission, all along knowing the decision that he has to make. Uh. But still, like when he has that final conversation with Jeremy Irons, you know, just, uh, you know, saying "I, I, I came here because I was hoping to, you know. I wanted to make sure that I found the way to tell you. I can't remember his words in that particular yeah. scene, but, but again, it's just, yeah.
2: Heartbreaking. And it's amazing how I, I think even I've watched it so many times, but the portion of that, where he's going on the tour, right? He goes, take me to these places. And he, Jeremy Irons takes them to one after another and he sees all these beautiful things and hears this beautiful singing and you know, how, how, how much these, this culture was in, invested in music and musical instruments and all that and you know that there's that moment where for me i still want to go he's not gonna he's gonna he's gonna change his mind you know that you're very convinced that what's going to come out is he's going to change his mind he's going to save these people and he doesn't yeah but you can still it's so well directed in that see that part of the movie that you're convinced that he spoiler alert if anyone hasn't seen it but <laughs> you know <you're, laughs> right. you're, you're, you go along you're so there emotionally with what is happening that i found myself hoping each and every time that the outcome will be different
1: well that's that scene where he is with the the, the portuguese guy and they're like outside at night under a tree and he brings him that letter from the king or whoever yeah, about i don't need and, and to he, read it yeah i don't need to read yeah. it and that's just like that scene right there it's like that was that point where he's just like he. You can tell that he's pretty upset at the decision that he's now going to have to make, and that was essentially the decision right there, getting made for him. Like he knows what he has to do. That's right. But just the way that he plays that, I mean, he's he he does the role of that religious figure, like political slash religious figure, in a in in a perfect way, kind of carrying the balance of all of that. Like he's never exuding anger or anything like that, but you can tell. It's. I mean, it's a frustrating situation. It's a frustrating decision that he essentially is has to make.
2: Yeah, and you find yourself at the. You know, you're you're all of those characters. You follow along with them. You become them, right? So you can identify with that that feeling, and you've either done it or seen it, or you know where the powers that be are not going to allow you to do anything but. Even if you don't want to, so it can happen on a very small scale with human beings on a large scale or an enormous scale. But even on a day-to-day basis where you're like, I'm sorry, I have to say no, I really would like to say yes. We, we understand that as human beings, like when we are powerless, right? He's, he's a huge figure, but he's powerless ultimately, and it crushes him. And you see that in the end, and you also feel his guilt. And it becomes your guilt. It doesn't hurt to sidebar that the movie is absolutely filled not only with great actors, but are they handsome or what?
1: Let's get real. <laughs> <laughs> Liam ne- little baby-faced Liam yeah. Neeson.
2: Oh, Aiden, Quinn. A- Aiden Quinn. Aiden yeah. and, Quinn. And, I mean, De Niro, there, his performance is just beyond Jeremy Irons, young Jeremy Irons, before he got, you know, to his scary different roles where he scared you now forever, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, they're just, they're just such, they're just they're. It's as if the director said to them, okay, you guys got to go into this with the most open of hearts. You're going to believe everything that you need to do 100%, right? They're so you look into their eyes, you look into their soul. And the way it is shot is, I mean, Chris Menjis is a, Brilliant Uh, cinematographer. All of his work is, I mean, from, there's not one thing he's ever shot that isn't amazing. So the fact that he can work in that environment and be probably the best natural lighter ever, like ever, and choosing the angles that they chose where, you know, when, when De Niro, I just, there's times where you just like, oh my God, you just, you feel their pain, even though they're not looking at you. You know what's happening when he, after he kills his brother and he's looking down and it, Ugh, there's that yeah. Dolly Zoom thing. It's just, so again, no words, very little dialogue, very little dialogue between the three, Aiden Quinn, the, I don't want to say girlfriend, and then, and De Niro, because it's the story of those brothers, right? The brothers.
1: Sherry Lungi Lungi, Oh yeah. Car, as Carlotta, yeah.
2: Yeah, Carlotta. That was a character. So spare, like watch it again and see how they don't talk about it. You know, they've talked about it, but they're not going to talk about it in front of us.
1: It's a really interesting sequence. And, you know, sometimes there are films where you watch and you have a like a, a story element like that kind of a beeline that feels very thin. And you're like, I'm not getting enough. It's, it's interesting how this one, the way that the script is as you said like they're not saying all of these things here but we're getting everything out of it like i i didn't feel like i missed anything i didn't feel like they shortchanged that story thread at all i still feel like i'm getting everything i needed to really understand where uh mendoza is at that particular moment after he gets so you know angry to the point where he kills his own brother i mean it's Mm -hmm.
2: but that dialogue between he and carlotta like you don't miss at all that she's that she's going to now be nervous and say to him, oh, I have something to tell you and I'm going to tell you this and tells him, no, forget all that. Even if they did shoot it, which I doubt they did, but you never know where he picks up that scene when he just turns to him and he says, Felipe, you know, like, you know, everything that's gone down, you know, everything. And you can see it in his heart and his eyes. And his, you know, it's really, really. And that again, like the most dialogue in any scene is that, scene with jeremy irons and and uh de niro in the jail in the when they're inside the monastery or wherever they are where he's been they have that incredible scene together where he says you killed your brother yeah you are laughable i mean it's brilliant writing so strong
1: Beautifully portrayed too by both of the actors, and and that leads to you know one of I, I I would say probably one of the one of the iconic out of many iconic scenes in the film, but it's like the penance scene when De Niro. He he ties all of his, every, everything from his past, essentially, into that net and is dragging it all the way up to the top of the falls. Yeah. And just, like, watching him go through that. And then it's, like, such a challenging scene to watch because we're right there with Liam Neeson's character, like, who is so frustrated. It's like, just cut He's it like, off. Him, and just, you're you're fine. You've done enough. You don't need to keep going. but. And then, yeah. and then when you, and, and you, so you're right there with all that frustration and then you can see how much it's obviously has affected him when he, after uh, Liam Neeson's character cuts the rope and then he goes back down goes back ties and ties it back it it up it. and pull, yeah.
2: Because he's and not then, done. Yeah. He's not done. You don't need to know. He doesn't say anything. De Niro says virtually nothing
1: nope. through that it's whole, just, it's
2: a long yeah. sequence. It is. The mu- again, the music is incredible. It's shot incredibly. Yeah. You feel for all of them and you know exactly where they're coming from. And when Jeremy Irons has to say to, to Liam Neeson, like, you know what? Uh, uh-uh. he's, I'm not going to help him. This isn't, this is not how it, you know, this isn't the way, whatever his exact words are, but, and then when he gets to the, it's oh. an, it's excruciating to watch him climb. It's the biggest allegory done so beautifully that I've ever seen in a movie um, and when he gets to the top, and what happens with him and Indigenous people is just—I can, I can barely speak about it. I'll start crying.
1: It. I mean, you it know, is. It, yeah.
2: It. It ties the whole story together.
1: Yeah, it's. It is one of just like my favorite scenes because <laughs> you see that person recognizes. I mean, first of all, there's kind of that threat, but then it's just like, no, this—he's, you know, we accept him, and they cut the rope, toss it over the falls. And just watching his face as he, Ugh. as he accepts it. Now I'm going to start crying. As he accepts, <laughs> as he accepts.
2: You can't <laughs> not, you can't oh not. It's like the people he's offended the most have now forgiven him so yeah. he can forgive himself. And you don't need to say it. No one says it. Yeah. It just happens in front of your eyes and you see him break down when Jeremy Irons co- comes and holds him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? And then he starts yeah. laughing.
1: Yeah.
3: And, and just like just, the, uh,
2: you've never seen it. I, I would dare anyone to, you know, email me with a more cathartic scene than that ever. Yeah, in any right. movie.
1: The, the, the expression on De Niro's face is like, Ugh. there's so much release in it. Like just the, the joy of, of like being free and like, you know, getting through that. And it just, I mean, it really,
2: unbelievable, phew, yeah, it's intense. I mean, I kicked myself every time I've worked with De Niro I've worked with Liam Neeson I've worked with Aiden Quinn and I never was <laughs> I didn't na- I did not have the wherewithal to ask them about that movie it <laughs> kills me I would have loved to have heard just a snippet yeah I'm sure it was the hardest thing to do in the whole wide world I'm sure it was beyond hard
1: I listened to a little bit of the director's track and he's talking about when, the, when like through that whole penance scene, when he's doing it, he's it's all barefoot and stuff. And he's just like De Niro was, he was determined to do it that way. There were scorpions and snakes spiders everywhere. I was like, <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm <laughs> I sure the
1: insurance on that film. <laughs> <You're
2: right. laughs> uh, there, there and where it comes, the uh, medical, the doctors and the nurses on set, you know?
1: Yeah,
0: Right. Uh,
2: and, and Jeremy Irons, you know, that all those vows that the Jesuit priests make and, there couldn't be a more pure of soul person who's not the slightest bit trite, by the way. Like the, there is nothing he, and he's barefoot the entire movie. He never puts on a pair of shoes because I'm sure that was one of his vows, but, uh, yeah, it's a killer. It's, it's not a pick me up that movie, but it's so wonderful and cathartic. And so it, you will never regret watching it.
1: It's an interesting ending to the film because you're right, it's a it's a heartbreaking end to the film, but at the same time, we do get some children at the very end that they come back to the village after it's been ver- burned and destroyed by the soldiers, and they're collecting little bits and pieces and everything, and you do get this sense as they kind of find these pieces, hop in the boat, and, and kind of journey back into the jungle that mm. there might be a future for them. I mean, we kind of un- sadly know where that future right. leads to, but still,
2: yeah, you have to believe that they again. You believe that they believe it, and for the director to put that in there, I think he had to. Right? You have to. You had like cut me a little bit of slack as an audience member. I'm destroyed, right? But you have to. You have to know. And I think it's and it's not again. It's not contrived at all because life does go on. People find a way, you know, communities of people find a way, and it speaks to the strength of religion without being religious, community, it speaks to the good in people, the evil in people, and it it never trivializes it, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's it's not a fantasy at all either, right? It's so real.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: It's stunning. It's a stunning piece of work all the way around. I don't know, ugh, you know, the sets. Yeah. I mean, my god, locations. Ugh.
1: Everything. Every, I mean, honestly, it's just it's it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. Uh, this film did get as as we said, it, it had seven, I think, Oscar nominations. Um, it only ended up winning uh, cinematography, which fair there. Um, it lost to Platoon for director and picture. It lost to uh, this. Was always surprises me just because I love the score so much. But it, the the score uh, it lost to Round Midnight, and uh, editing also lost to Platoon, and uh, art direction and costume design. And I did want to ask you a little bit about this. They lost to A Room with a View. Um, this film, you know, the costumes are spectacular in this film. Um, it was uh, Enrico Sabatini who did the costumes here. Um, but where do you stand? on that as far as uh, a room with a view versus this both period pieces
2: yeah i mean i would and i think room of the view is beautiful it's beautifully done
1: such a great film mr Beeb.
2: yeah it's you know i think also like you're looking back on a year this year in terms of nominations in general like a lot of competition and now it feels like we can you know they we have 10 We now we have 10 films that you can barely eke out for that are (laughs) <laughs> of caliber, right? This is just like intense, all the way down. Like, oh my god, what would you vote for? You know, it's crazy. But in, I think, I think it's also a time when, I think probably you could probably ch- fact check me here, but I'm guessing Room with a View was more popular, made more money,
1: probably, perhaps,
2: yeah. right? Yeah. It's it's a lot more a- a- accessible to people. I mean, I would vote for the mission a hundred percent because it's very hard to do that it's very minimal so maybe but it's not at all you think of those carnival scenes and those really you know the all the stuff that happens with that is there a lot of people in that movie it had to have been a logistical nightmare to pull off you know where you i'm sure they had brought all the costumes in from from italy um he's a very good designer but i think that it's just people love a popular movie they love a nice movie and they it was the sort of the heyday and it still continues, but the of 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 the British drama and all the romance of that being important to the Academy, to audiences, you see that time and time again. So I don't regret that room of the view one. I just think I think this work is harder to do and very spot on too.
1: There, uh, well, and you know, that's a trick because I wonder Uh, You might know more than I, but in especially when you're recreating period pieces, you know, for for people thinking about the movie, do they think, well, it was just it was really authentic. It didn't feel like they were really doing any, you know, magic with it or creating, you know, their own costumes. It just felt authentic. And I suppose you could say that with Room with a View, too, but it's like the big dresses and stuff like that It just feels
2: more flowery. And yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. It's glamorous. It's got a lot. There's a lot to it right it's it's the the work shows on the face of it it's not it's not something you have to discover kind of i think to take you know trying to bring a, in terms of the indigenous people trying to bring a culture to life that wasn't until even recently well obviously well photographed right you have you don't have much reference for what that authenticity is Deeking into that and drilling down in that and making it look as good as he did, I think is a remarkable achievement. And I think that all of them, I mean, you know, it's like the fact that those, the Portuguese and the, the Spanish and they, and they're all, you know, the 1750s, the garb, the early 1800s, wearing all those clothes into that, into that, you know, just jungle you right. the Hot humidity alone. of youth. but what people did wearing the wigs where you know it's it again it gives you this incredible vi- uh visual of the two different parts of civilization absolutely colliding with the jesuits somewhere in the middle just they're just somewhere in the middle
1: stuck right in the middle of it all yeah, yeah.
2: and they're they're clothes i mean jeremy irons like the aging i you know i'm always like Look at everything. It's like the aging alone on his garment is so well done. It's so beautiful. It looks absolutely everything looks so real that that's hard to do. So maybe reality doesn't necessarily win over fancy or popular.
1: Yeah, which, you know, I, as you said, I mean, I, I, probably a, a trend in the in the industry. And I, you know, I, I think there's always these trends. Like I, I you know, you know, as an outsider, we would always hear, oh, it's always the period piece that wins. It's not going to be a fantasy costume that'll win. It'll be a period piece, you know, and I, you know, I think that there are exceptions to that rule. But it's, you know, I, I think
3: that you and far between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right, mm-hmm. right.
2: And even like, I, as a recipient myself, it's like, Titanic was a period that was very, very glamorous. And yeah, it was a very popular film. So, you know, you can make a case that no matter who designed it, they would have won. Right. It's, it's just, it's like the, it fits right in the pocket. It's perfect. I think the fact that people still, to me, remember the costumes, like they're not just cause I don't remember, you know, I'll like the next year I'll be like, what was the, you know, you remember the idea (laughs) of the costumes, but you may not remember the costume. So that's very gratifying, but truly it's a, you know, there is that popularity part of the awards.
1: There's an interesting element, and this just triggered in the way that you were saying that, but I think there's also a way that the directors know how to use those costumes because... it could be simply that hat reveal of Kate Winslet that won you that Oscar. oh I mean, did was, it. That was an amazing that was a
2: scary. That was a very scary day.
1: Yeah. Well. Well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You yeah. want to hear a tiny little story before? I'm sure we're. Yeah. Unless we, do we have more to talk about the mission and how amazing it is,
1: you know, I I will probably do a little budget read uh, once you're gone, just to have. But um, uh, unless you want to hear it, I can do that while you're here. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, I always just do a little budget thing. But um, here, I'll just I'll just read it, and you can okay. you can sit and yeah. listen in. Okay. Joffe had a budget of sixteen point four million pounds, which is about twenty five point four million dollars at the time, and sixty eight point eight million in today's dollars. The movie premiered at Cannes in May nineteen eighty six, then it opened in the UK October seventeenth. And then the US, October 31st, 1986, opposite Sky Bandits, a strange release day for both films. This movie never quite found its audience, opening in 15th place and slowly dropping from there. It went on to earn $17.2 million domestically and $3.6 million internationally for a total gross of $56.3 million in today's dollars. That unfortunately lands the film with an adjusted loss per finished minute. This is a silly thing we do on this show, but mm. uh, in the scope of how much money movies cost, uh, it lost almost $100,000 per finished minute. Still with the Oscar nominations, it has certainly stayed in the conversation and hopefully has since found its audience
2: that doesn't surprise me
1: yeah and it's just considering it won at con it's just it's uh awful that it never really kind of found its audience i although i i think that maybe because of the score i think people have probably been returning to it over the years
2: yeah i hope so i mean i think it's you know it's a very powerful movie yeah absolutely
1: yeah. Well, hopefully people will tune into this and they'll go check it out as well.
2: <laughs> hopefully.
1: <laughs> All right, tell me your story. What's your last little okay, story? Okay, so my got? last
2: little story is that we had uh, you know, Jim wanted me to make a hat that was the biggest hat I could possibly. Hats were big then, obviously. Sure, you yeah. know that, right? That was yeah. just but you got to make the biggest hat that you've ever made. Like <laughs> the <laughs> biggest hat. So, it's pretty hard to get a hat you know made out of the proper materials to be that big you know you have to the hat maker did an amazing job so also to keep in proportion with her body and what looked beautiful and you know so here's the hat the hats on the day it's i'm like very excited about that it was the first day we saw the whole costume and jim does a an amazing reveal i mean unbeknownst to me that was his plan and you know from toes all the way up and it's like you know so yeah he did that a lot he he does know how to use a use a costume. He's he's quite good about that. But anyway, so we get to the set and you know, I hadn't I was it was such a hard movie to make. We were so busy all the time that I hadn't thought to like, oh my God, she's stepping out of a car, right? She's stepping out of that car. Right. The car door the car door (laughs) is so narrow. (laughs) Oh no. That I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, she's not gonna be able to fit through the car door with that hat. So I'm terrified and like sweating bullets on on set and just, you know, and Jim just uh, didn't blink an eye. And later on, he said to me recently, because we had a conversation about this, he said, I would have just cut and figured it out. But it's like, "Mm, you would have been mad too, but (laughs) I would have been curious. But, you know, somehow it was just like the luck of everything that she just bows her head perfectly and slips right through. It looks like magic. Yeah. You know, so. And then to reveal this, it's kismet and you reveal her in her face just how gorgeous she looks, her completely translucent skin. And, you know, she's just amazing. She's an amazing actress. And
1: just like, you know, following all the way through to today, like the things that she said about the film that she just acted in, I'm like, good for her. She, you know, the fact Mm -hmm. that she's just like, just shoot me. This is what I look like. I'm like, more Mm -hmm. people need to uh, talk up or speak up and talk that way. So.
2: Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely, she's a wonderful person. We were reunited in Way of Water, which was really fun. We hadn't yeah. seen each other; we hadn't seen each other in 25 years or something. So that's pretty cool. Oh,
1: just the <laughs> the 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 fluid relationships in the film world always yeah. kind of going with, like with Jim yeah.
2: Cameron at the helm. You know, so we had a lot of war stories. We definitely had a lot of <laughs> oh, war sure. Stories. <laughs> oh my gosh,
1: what fun! Well, Deborah, uh, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming and joining me to talk about the mission and all of these other wonderful things that you've been a part of. Uh, it really is uh, amazing.
2: Well, thank you, Andy, for having me. I've really enjoyed our, our conversation, too.
1: Do you have like a website or anything where you like have your artwork or your, your, you know, any of your images that you design? Anything where people should go and follow you?
2: I have an Instagram page now. Pretty, I just started it um, when Way of Water came out, so it's pretty limited. But since then, we have had a, We had the a Titanic anniversary, and we're having some more. So I've been kind of quiet on it with uh, being in solidarity with the actors and the, the mm. writers. Sure. So yep, yeah. hoping, hoping that gets settled soon for all of our sakes, and that no the kidding. audiences can go back to enjoying wonderful films. And get back in the theater, for sure. That's, that's my biggest hope back in the theater
1: well hopefully people are getting back into the theater now uh anyway just to kind of at least kind of continue uh, yeah getting those things back where they used to be you know
2: yeah tough stuff man
1: Ugh, i tell it's you
2: tough tough few years so
1: really has been really has been again deborah thank you so much thank you again. for everybody else out there we hope that you liked the show and certainly hope you like the movie like we do here on movies we like Movies we like is a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The music is "Chong Clap" by Out of Flux. Find the show at TrueStory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Letterboxd at The Next Reel. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we always appreciate it if you drop one in there for us. See you next time. Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point.
0: <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort.
1: TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's
0: right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next
2: read and dig in today.